1981, the year I was born and the birth of the millennial generation. A podcast for the rising stars and venture capital. This is Fund 81. Hello, listeners. It's Elizabeth Krause, your host of Fund 81. And today we're going to take a unique approach. So instead of me interviewing someone, I'm going to actually have somebody interview me. So Liz Mead is a new angel investor, and she had several questions about investing in early stage venture funds. And I thought it might be helpful for me to just answer those questions because they're very common questions that early investors have. So Liz, over to you to ask those questions. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you for taking the time to answer all my newbie questions for investing. Happy to. Uh, First, what are the most important things to look for when considering a venture fund? So there's a couple things that I look for, and they're pretty similar to actually what we look for when we're considering entrepreneurs to invest in. So first and foremost, we look for fund managers who are just obsessed with the problem that they're solving. They love doing this. They have a deep personal passion for the work that they're doing. Secondly, we look for people that have convinced other smart people to join them, either as investors or as mentors or advisors or people to support their portfolio companies. We also look for people with a track record of making the seemingly impossible possible. So if they've done something like move to this country with $12 in their pocket and figured out how to make a life from there and they want to invest in people like them because they've been successful entrepreneurs in the past, then that sounds fantastic to us. And then there's a couple fun specific things that we look for. So we want to know what kind of deal flow they have. So how many opportunities do they see a year? And of those, how many did they invest in? What are the channels from which they receive investment opportunities? We also look at their track record. Sometimes new fund managers don't have a track record of cash returns because it takes on average five to seven years to see a return on investment for angel opportunities. But we like to see what their investments look like on paper. Have the companies that they invested in raised follow-on rounds? Have they increased in valuation because they've increased their revenue, etc.? And then we also look for whether other smart investors have invested alongside them. So either have investors that are notable investors that people look up to in the venture capital community invested directly with them in the opportunities that they've invested in, or have they invested after the fund managers have invested. That should give you a couple of things to look for. Does that help? Yes, definitely. Thank you. Great. Okay, so next, let's move to management fees. What is a management fee? And what type of management fee structure is typical in a venture fund? Fund managers typically do all of the work to source the investment opportunities, to look at those investment opportunities, quote unquote, vet them to decide whether they want to invest. And they also do the work to support those portfolio companies. In exchange for that work, they charge a management fee. 
Typically, the management fee ranges from 1% to 3%, and it really depends on the structure of the fund and also the size of the fund. So what I've found when we were deciding what our management fee was going to be is that early stage venture funds of under about $50 million typically have a 2 to 2.5% two management fee, but it depends on how many years that management fee is going to be charged. So a lot of funds, and we may get into this later, have a multi-year investment term, and they may charge a different management fee depending on what part of the term they are in. And the total that you want to stay under is about 19% of the fund. So if your investment term is 10 years and you charge a management fee each of those years and it comes out to be about 25% of the fund, that's pretty high. So when I was um, searching online and kind of educating myself, there were some terms I came across that I didn't really understand. So some things like hard cap and minimum close. Can you explain those? So the hard cap typically refers to the maximum amount a fund can raise. So say you're raising $100 million and in your fundraising process, you find 50 more people that want to invest a million dollars and you come up with $150 million. If your plan is to raise $100 million, but your hard cap is $120 million, then you can only raise $120 million and they have to turn those other 30 people away. The minimum close is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Typically, it takes fund managers a while to raise their entire fund. So if they're raising a $100 million fund, their minimum close may be $50 million. And once they get to $50 million in commitments, they can actually take the money that the investors are investing. Otherwise, they just have to take those commitments and keep raising until they hit their minimum close. And so why do hard caps and minimum closes matter? They matter a lot, actually, because it changes the structure, the strategy, and the portfolio allocation of the fund. Using that $100 million fund example again, say they say that they're going to invest $50 million of those in really early stage companies, and then they're going to invest the other $50 million in late stage companies. If they only get to the $50 million and decide that they're going to start investing at a minimum close of $25 million, hypothetically speaking, then they might start making $25 million of early stage investments when they have that minimum close of $25 million. And then they'll only have $25 million more to make those late stage investments. So the portfolio allocation changes a bit. That might be totally fine, but the biggest thing you should do if you're considering funds is ask the fund manager what their minimum close and what their hard cap is, and then ask them what their contingency plan is and how their strategy may change if they either raise more or less of their intended raise. Okay, thank you for explaining that. No problem. Thanks for being such a good sport. I love this. Um, what is a GP commitment? Uh, GP commitment is how much the general partners are going to commit themselves. So the general partners are the people who 
are responsible for making the investments and that they're the people that hold the accountability for the fund. We typically like to see a GP commit because it shows that they have skin in the game and it shows that they are willing to put their own money into it and really believe in the opportunity. Yeah. I would think that would be helpful when someone is investing in a fund that the general partner is also investing. What commitment level is typical for a general partner? My understanding is it's typical to see somewhere between a one and 3% commit. So, you know, if you're raising a $200 million fund and you're asking the general partners to commit 1% of that, that's obviously a much bigger commitment than 1% of a $20 million fund. I like to look at a couple things. So first of all, the general partner is a term that encompasses every partner in the firm typically. Some funds may have one general partner and others may have 10. So you consider that. And then the second thing to consider is what's the financial situation of the general partners. For some general partners, a $25,000 investment might be something that really is a significant amount of money for them to invest. Whereas another may have sold their company for a billion dollars and that's like change to them. All right, thanks. What is a distribution waterfall? So a distribution waterfall lines out how and when the investors are going to be paid. So you invest in a fund and then that fund makes investments. And if the investments return capital to the fund, the distribution waterfall outlines when and how that capital is going to be distributed. What distribution waterfall structure is typical? We typically see, and this is a really important question to ask, that the investors receive the total amount that they invested before the general partners receive any of that cash. So say you're an investor and you invest a million dollars in a fund and that fund makes an investment that returns a million dollars. To keep it simple, let's assume that you're the only investor in the fund. So the fund managers under that scenario would not receive any of the capital and the investors would receive the entire million dollars. Can you explain carried interest? Carried interest is sort of the next step to this, which is how much do the general partners receive after the investors receive their money back? So we typically see a structure of 80% to the investors, 20% to the general partners. So if you invest a million dollars into a fund and you're the only investor and the distribution waterfall is that you get your cash back first and then after that the general partners have 20% carried interest, then that would mean if you invested a million dollars, the fund invested in a company that was sold for $2 million, then you would receive $800,000 and then the GPs would receive $200,000. Okay, that makes sense. Can you explain what an offering period is? Yes. So the offering period outlines how long the fund can fundraise. A lot of times it takes a long time to find enough investors to fill out the fund. And 
as a potential investor in the fund, you want to make sure that the fund managers have enough time to get to the amount that they need to execute their strategy. But you also don't want them to have too much time because you want to be earning interest in your money. You want to decide what to do with your money and be able to make decisions. And so you don't want to commit and then not be able to actually invest and have that money invested until five years later. So So is the offering period dependent on how much the fund is raising or is there a typical offering period, like a year to two years? So a year to two years is a, is a normal range, and it depends on how much they're raising. It also depends on how hard it's going to be for those particular fund managers to fill that fund. So if those fund managers have had several successful funds before and they're just asking their current investors to invest in another fund, then it might take them three weeks, whereas a new fund manager may take longer to get those commitments. So what happens if they don't get those commitments during the established offering period is there, can they do an extension or what happens? Well, actually, you're pointing out something really important, which is that all these terms are typically changeable. Generally, what would happen is if the fund managers are unable to raise the amount that they want to raise during the offering period, then they will probably go back to the investors who have committed and say, hey, you know, we've been working really hard. We'd like to extend our offering period. Will you give us approval to do that? And if they approve that, then they'll continue. If they don't, then they just won't be able to raise the fund and they'll never take in that money. Oh, wow. Okay. So then that brings me to my next question. What is the fun term? So the fund term is the amount of time that the fund is actually active. Typically, that's a 10-year term. Okay. And so that means for those 10 years, the fund is actively investing. And then once the 10-year mark hits, do they stop investing? No. So there's two different things. There's an investment term and then there's an investment period. Oh, okay. I got those confused. Thank you. Yeah. So the investment term is the time that the investment vehicle, the fund, is actually operating in some way. And then the investment period is the time that it's actually making investments. And that typical structure is five years of actually making investments and then five years of just being in existence as a fund. Okay, gotcha. So what are the most important terms to look for when determining whether a fund meets the criteria we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast? You know, when you talk about whether the incentives are aligned, so think about if the fund managers are going to be incentivized to actually achieve a return on investment. So going back to that management fee, if the management fee is providing enough cash to the fund managers that they could live a very, very nice life without even making an investment. That could be a red flag, but it could also be something that's not a red flag because it may be an investor who has had a tremendous track record and they've made their own way to make a very nice lifestyle for themselves. And that money isn't really going to make a big difference, but they have a proven track record of being extraordinarily passionate about what they're doing and producing returns for investors. But it's just one thing to look for. So look at the management fee and think about the 
percent of alignment there. The second thing is the distribution waterfall. Again, you want to make sure that the fund managers have an incentive to continue to produce a return on their investment before just receiving cash and being able to kick up their heels. Somebody gave me good advice one time when I was thinking about this from an investor perspective, and they said, you know, we invest in entrepreneurs and make sure that they have enough to be hungry, but that they also have enough that they're not distracted. And I think that that's a good rule of thumb for fund managers as well. So to go back to this distribution waterfall, is an 80-20 split pretty typical? It is, yes. And then I just, as you were talking about the general partner and the general partner's commitment, you know, if I was introduced to a fund and a general partner that I really had no experience with prior and I want to get references and things about the, the general partner, do people ever ask for background checks or, you know, like, hey, is this person ever declared bankruptcy? What's their financial history? Just as knowledge to, to really decide, is this a general partner I want to get involved with? How much can I trust them? Do people do things like that? Yeah, so I've actually never been asked to submit to a background check, but I have actually asked entrepreneurs to do that when I've invested in them. And I would certainly submit to a background check if someone asked me. So that is something that you could do. And actually, it's something that you can do very affordably as well. I think the the more important thing to look at is who has said yes? So have sophisticated investors with great reputations said yes to this fund? The other thing is to think about how much are they investing themselves? And who in their network that they care about have they gotten to invest as well? So is their mother investing? Is their grandmother investing? Have they asked their friends and family? And have they asked entrepreneurs that they invested that have been successful to be a part of this opportunity? That helps you understand their credibility. That's helpful. Well, I think that's all the questions I have for right now. Great. (laughs) Well, thanks so so much. much. This was fun. This was a very fun way to answer your questions. Yeah, I appreciate it. I feel much more prepared when shopping for a fund as a newer angel investor. Love it. Love it. All right, listeners, we will see you next week.